Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast focused on mainframe and mainframe topics. And sometimes good dessert recipes. Well, you know, you got to keep it open. Yeah. Got to keep it open. So we're here at TechU uh, recording a bunch of sessions. And uh, luckily we have an architect instead of one of those techno weenies we normally interview. So, uh, Bill, uh, can you tell us about the work that you do? Yeah, I'm... Uh... I've been I've been doing the uh, mainframe architect job since, geez, about um, 2004. We started a team of mainframe software architects, and um, started off with with kind of a, a migration from our software architect job role into uh, a set of architects that that specifically focused on C technology. So we go and work with customers on, on what their problems are and how to solve them with uh, mainframe technology, either at the center of it or somewhere on the periphery. And uh, we, we try to do it from a higher level point of view than going, hey, you know, what are you going to do with WebSphere? It's more of a, what do you need to do to solve your problem? Okay. And then we apply you know, whatever particular products or technologies to it. Because people may not be uh, familiar with the term uh, or the role of an architect. It's It's, you know... It's what George Costanza pretended to be, and what the dad from the Brady Bunch <laughs> apparently was. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of people going to college to, to be an architect. So, how does somebody really step into that role? Well, that's that's a that's a great question because we um, when when I started as a software architect, which was my job before the Z architect job, I'm, I worked with a set of folks in IBM that had kind of um, set you know set the stage for that profession in IBM from a um, you know the, the customer facing um, point of view and that um, the, when we did that we we did some kind of research as to what made for a good architect right and it's a different kind of I would say that some people have got the DNA to be architects and some people have got the DNA to be like like technical specialists and so it was like people that had something of a spin of of artsiness to their we, we found that a lot of good architects were musicians or, you know, of course, you know, it's great to be able to draw on the board and do whiteboarding things. But um, it's just that side of your brain that, that comes to fore. And the thing we really wanted to focus on at the time was somebody that could look broadly at technology, that had a broad set of experiences. So to be an architect, to your point, Jeff, it's um, have you been exposed to a lot of different technologies, not just mainframe, but other things? And have, had, have you had a lot of customer experiences where you've seen it all, so to speak? Uh, and, and that tends to make that person more valuable both to the customer and to IBM because they, they've got that experience and that wisdom that they've developed and, and can apply it. So there's this knowledge and wisdom kind of crossover that, that comes to play there. So it's kind of interesting the way you, you say it. I can't take somebody who's just out of college and turn them into an architect right. because they just don't have the scars. So <laughs> you have to be out there in the world and, and get those. Like you can't really sing the blues if you're if you're 20 years old, that's right. Life experience, and that's what it is. It's 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 life experience slash work experience in this case, and um, and it's you can kind of develop it with time. When when I came out, I wasn't I hadn't been an architect when I started the job, but I had worked in organizations in IBM where that we did client server work I, for 10 or 15 years. I worked on stuff that was not mainframe related, and so I had been exposed to that. I'd worked with with AIX and done some things around that and system management software and written applications in Visual Basic and small talk and just this, this whole gamut of technology that now is kind of antique but one of the things is then you're not afraid to go do something new. Right. And that's really relevant to what's going on right now with, with uh, new technology on the Z platform. 
because we spend an awful lot of time talking about how cool the latest technology is on this podcast, and, and it really is. But you don't care so much about how cool the new technology is, right? Well, I personally do. <laughs> I'm just a geek anyway, but um, <laughs> I, one of the we, we, we'd like to have our architects focused, like I said, on the business aspect of what it is the customer wants to do. And, and it's, it's a little difficult sometimes because pretty much all of our colleagues are like this. They like the technology. But they also, um, we, we have architects that work specifically with specific customers. So you may have someone that works with a couple of banks or somebody works with a couple of retailers. And so they know that business. They know how retail works. They know what point of sale is. They know um, the technologies that they use so they can apply the, the things that they're proposing to their customers to that specific customer industry. And so while they're not steeped directly, you know, they're not a, a, a specialist in MQ or in, um, you know, writing code in Node.js or something like that, they they have an appreciation for what those things are and how they basically work and can apply those to these problems that get presented to them. So, you know what makes a podcast better? Leaf blowers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that'll come through. Hey, uh, we're, we're working from what they gave us, and we are very thankful that That's they right. gave this, us this room. Yeah. Well, and you know, this is what happens when you're recording live somewhere yeah. and not in the wonderful studio we have back The Terminal home. Talk Studios of Poughkeepsie, New York. Yeah. A.K.A. my office. <laughs> Terminal Talk HQ. <laughs> no, what were we going to call it um, after the TPF episode? Oh, the Terminal Talk Podcasting Facility. <laughs> yeah, there we are. <laughs> that, that word facility. In yeah. It sounds official. Yeah. <laughs> It, what, it sounds like the big difference between like the architect approach and the um, G technology is wonderful approach is just not getting married to a, a solution for right. everything. Yeah, it's the hammer and nail thing. If if all you got's a hammer, everything's a nail, right? And that we, we, we architects like to use methodologies to get to the end, end solution, right? So that keeps you away from that. Um, you know, I've, I've only got one solution, or my favorite little gizmo product that I want to apply to everything. So we... Blockchain. Sorry. <laughs> something like that, right? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's... it's um, the technology du jour is not necessarily the answer. You know, Jeff, in one of your presentations, you mentioned that MQ has started to reemerge as an interesting integration technology. Right. And if we applied that kind of approach of, of, of evaluating requirements as opposed to saying, I got a tool... I want to use it, uh-huh. then we would run, we would probably not have had that issue where MQ kind of um, declined in its in its usage for a little while, and now everyone's realizing, hey, you know, messaging and queuing is a pretty cool approach of, of communicating between applications. But, but you have to let people invent it all over again. Oh, right. It's, <laughs> uh, the NIH syndrome is definitely a, a problem. But, um, you know, the, the good news there is that our, our large customers have always – since the product emerged back when it was, I forget what, in the late 90s. But it's it's been in use heavily, and it still is. And now some of these new technologies like Internet of Things and, and connecting to, you know, a, a medical sensing device, it makes sense for. So it's um, – I think people are just realizing uh, the old way is not necessarily the bad way. Right. It's, it's funny that you say it that way because I've seen often that when I'm working with some – uh, company, a lot of their developers want to use something new just because it's new. Right. And oh, this I want to use this. Well, what do you actually need it for? Well, it's new and cool, and I, I want to be able to say that I've done this. And and certainly, from a professional perspective, if I'm 
if I'm working here but working to make my resume look better, I'm definitely going to want to do that. How do you kind of work around that that kind of thing? You mean the, the use my favorite technology yeah. thing? Well, it's it, it's it's really I think uh, brought forth through using a methodology to make an architectural decision. So if I um, if I'm walking my way through evaluating functional and non-functional requirements for an application. I do it more from a functionality point of view. I, the, the old adage used to be with the architects that we never, we never use product names. And, and so that was, that was always the way of, av- of avoiding that was to say, I'm not going to call out MQ or WebSphere or anything like that. I'm going to say I need to have the ability to, to, to send a message to another application or communicate with it or integrate with it rather than saying, I need to use MQ. So that, that as you go down through the, the you know, multi-layered onion of going from requirements to solution, uh, you stay away from that until you kind of get to the operationalized architecture where it says, this is really the product layout and where it lives. And, and that's kind of the end point rather than the midpoint. So if you take an architectural approach, to what your product selections are. You don't get caught up in that, um, hey, by golly, I got Node.js, and this is the answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to port everything to this, and yeah, then exactly. we'll be good until the next thing comes. You know, you know that said, it, it, it's not like I'm saying, oh, there's some sin behind using new technology, because there's not. There's, you know, just what you guys work with a lot with with services and, and uh, REST and so forth, really accessible technology. You know, Jeff, you said it this morning, and you had a guy that said, if it ain't Rust, I'm not going to use it. Yeah. And, and there's a reason for that, not because because he's got some bias towards it, just because it's a it's a really simple way of, of integrating with a service. Um, at, the, at the same time, I've seen instances where there is a, a stigma around Z um, right. that says, I, I'm a free, you know, if, if I'm a, a new CIO, CEO, whatever, I am... I might be hesitant to say we're going with this mainframe solution because to people unwashed yet, they, they think that it's, you know, it's the thing with the magnetic tapes in the right. background and the punch cards. And it's like, wow, this, why are we bringing this new guy if all he's going to do is to use old solutions? Well, yeah, you just got me on my soapbox that magnetic <laughs> tape and punch card uh, And impression. Frank and I will now just lean back and let <laughs> the fire's going to start. <laughs> The only reason we came here is to get them pissed off. Yeah. So we yeah. You know, yeah, you know, I have a sensitivity to that instantiated by my Twitter presence. But it's it, when when the the trade press media doesn't do us any favors by constantly depicting mainframes as the 1960 system 360 that fills a room kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. When you put a picture of a computer on on your page. Put a real one on there that, that that's current rather than one that was around 45 years ago because it, it's a night and day difference. When you you talk to somebody about what a mainframe is, I, I used to always start off my presentations with a picture of the box, right? Yeah. And it, it's it's a it looks like a fridge that you buy in an expensive uh, you know um, kitchen and bath store, right? It's about the size of an industrial fridge. It's not a you know two acre piece of hardware. <laughs> uh, so, but but the, that that stigma is there because it's propagated by those kinds of articles we used, we used to joke around my i was a system programmer when i started right and so we used to always denigrate some of these roles of architects and things like that that they would just read magazines and made their decisions based on the you know, latest article in the magazine if that's all you see 
then that's the kind of impression you're going to get. Yeah, if, if, if half the article is, and it's a lot of it is just lazy reporting. Is how many times can you do the joke of there's a mainframe and it's new, but there used to be an old one, and it's yeah. it's like oh yeah we we know let's get past this. You use this joke every time a new mainframe comes out. That's right. You know the the <laughs> the, the, the joke on Twitter when we were complaining about this a few oh, weeks ago great. was yeah that's that thread was classic but you know just does, does the media put pictures of model t's in when ford comes out with a new model of an eclipse <laughs> no it's, they've they put in the new car why don't they put in a picture of a z14 so uh, yeah it's actually so. derived from the horse and buggy that's shown right here for the th- second you know second yeah. half of the article yes yes the stone age man <laughs> c- carved a wheel out of stone and that's where we started that's where the mainframe uh, it's just silly it's just silly and I, I tell you, the, one of the ways we tried to fix this problem was, this has been years ago now, probably 2006 or seven after we'd come out with whatever generation um, mainframe box was out then, we brought a whole bunch of software architects into a room at, at one of our events, and we had we had written an application in, in Kix that kind of mimicked um, a really basic Twitter, and so you could just p- pound in a message, it would fire a Kix transaction, and it would put it up on the screen. And um, so we had about 100, 150, 200 architects. I forget what it was. It was a big number. And we had them sit down and go through a script to create a Linux guest on a, on a mainframe. So we had about 200 guys building Linux systems. And, um, and then they, were, they would build this Linux system up, and then it would run a, they would install a client on there. It was a piece of code we had written to fire this Kix transaction. So we had Linux and a ZOS system all in this thing. And we just said, get going, put this thing together. So they all sat down and they, they saw how Linux was Linux and mm-hmm. they could just install Linux. They saw that they could fire a transaction on a Z system. That and, and oh, by the way, over in the corner, literally in the corner of a ballroom at a Vegas hotel, we had a, a Z9 or something set, sitting there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like a rack of a, you know, the equivalent of whatever DS8000 was that, back then. And they could see that it wasn't just, a, you know, some big honking computer that was this little box. And it was all self-contained. And, oh, by the way, they could just send messages as fast as they could, 200 or so people. And we had an, like an Omega Mon screen up, and it was barely blipping, <laughs> you, know, it, you know, like 2% of utilization on the machine. So we changed a lot of minds that night with a bunch of guys that were not Z people by simply showing how easy it was to do this stuff and by showing that physically this thing is, is no bigger than a couple of racks of servers. So those, those kind of things. Those kind of things are what we have to do. That was interesting. <laughs> Frank, are you okay? <laughs> that was his heart. <laughs> so how, how do we go about um, how, how do we go about balancing that message of it's just the same with but somehow it's better? Yeah, yeah. If it's the same, then why do I need to use it instead of the stuff that yeah. we've been installing for the last ten years? I, that's a good question. I, one of the things that our, my, myself and my fellow architects spend a lot of time doing is explaining just that. What is the benefit? Um, Z14, thankfully, makes that easier because we can point to pervasive encryption and say, look, the, the crypto capabilities of this machine have always been great, but now they're you know, infinitely better than that used to be. And we can encrypt all of the data and network traffic and all and, and basically not use much of any general purpose MIPS of the machine. So that's one huge benefit. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Most of our big customers have got their business applications already on the platform. So it's integration with it. It's, um, you know, using Linux engines to augment the workload they have. It's just a whole pile of benefit that 
in in mass comes together and says, hey, this is a really great platform to run things on. And oh, by the way, it runs the same kinds of workloads that you can use on these smaller um, servers that you're running. We do a lot of cost justification discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there's offerings that come out of our competitive project office team that that uh, look at cost of ownership comparisons, and uh, not that those necessarily change minds because you have customer chargeback situations that you have to deal with where they go, you know, even though the platform's cheap, it doesn't look cheap to this department because they're charging an arm and a leg for it. So uh, we have to work our way through those. Um, but it, it, you know, I, I think for a lot of our existing customers, at least, that they, they see the value of it already. And if we can get past some of the cost considerations, we can continue to leverage it. And it's funny you mentioned the cost thing. I know a lot of companies, um, because they know that the mainframe, or, or they can follow the the thought that the mainframe is expensive, they will charge other parts well, of, mm-hmm. of the business to to uh, the mainframe. One of the customers that I had worked with in the past, they charged the corporate jet to the mainframe because they figured nobody would ever notice because <laughs> the mainframe is already expensive. Who's well, going to notice? Yeah, we were having this conversation at lunch today. Actually, it's um, MLC sensitive because it's a very visible single charge. It's on the bill. You know, the, you get a bill. There it is. Whereas a lot of this other stuff is scattered out, you know, all over the budgets of these companies and departments and um, and line items where it's not recognizable. Um, I, I think that the, there's. I used to joke that SMF was the worst thing that we ever did <laughs> because with SMF we can measure everything, right. and as a result, we can charge for everything. And you know, no insults to the folks in Poughkeepsie that invented SMF, but that's that's what it gets used for. Right. And um, there's not such a thing with these other platforms. You're not seeing – I mean, there, there's more of it now than there used to be. We've done – we and other vendors have done a nice job in coming up with new products to measure and monitor, but still, this is the one that everybody sees. Because yeah, they, don't, they don't monitor at the granularity that, right. that Z does. So Yeah, so it's uh, – if you can monitor it, you charge for it. And so we, we, we have some issues there. I, there's a lot, there's so much expense that's just not visible in the IT budget that um, it's visible on ours. You What you see is what you get. It it's There's no hidden charges in Z. You see the charge for the hardware, you see the charge for the software. Um, the others, not so much. You mentioned earlier uh, the the complaint that you had when you were a techno weenie is that architects, uh, they read about a technology and suddenly that's what they want to do or you know that's how they catch up we're at a time when new technologies are coming out all the time as an architect how do you keep up with all the new and different changes you read a lot for one you listen to podcasts like this one right (laughs) um i used to there was a guy i used to work with who just retired from ibm used to call me the condor and uh, I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, in three days of the condor, Robert Redford got paid for reading books. Right. And that, you know, that was kind of his joke in the movie. And, movie. and I used to I, – I still read tons. And uh, I keep up with – I try to keep up with what's going on. It's the, the velocity of the change is so high these days, you never know what's coming up next. I'm constantly hearing of some new open source tool or something that I'd never heard of before. And uh, I make an attempt to, to learn something about it. In, in certain cases, I will just flat out – install it myself just to learn something about it. Um, one of the things, you know, I'm the community leader for the North America mainframe architects, so I have some responsibility for helping them get educated in certain things. And part of that is hands-on. Part of it is 
you know, webcasts and other kind of events. Part of it's things like this where you come in face-to-face and learn it. So uh, as an architect, you have to make a very overt effort to learn um, and, and learn about a broad variety of things rather than just your particular you know, subject as a specialist if you were one of those. But you know, me personally, it's reading. It's as much hands-on as I can tolerate and uh, <laughs> You know, without just getting totally inundated. You, know, you, you joked about blockchain a while ago. That's actually we've got a lot of customer interest in that, and uh, I've thankfully the tooling that we have through Hyperledger it makes it pretty easy for you to get some hands on. So I've done a lot of that. I worked at the this this was one of the most refreshing things I've done as a IBM Z person in years. We there was a blockchain hackathon at the University of Arkansas a couple of weeks ago. So I go down there, uh, one of our colleagues said, hey, can you help? You've got some hands-on experience. Yeah, not much, but I'll be glad to help. And so I go down there, and um, there's 65 or so Walton Business School students that are um, working on building blockchain solutions from use cases that had been presented by Walmart and um, Tyson and J.B. Hunt and I think one other one. Um, they were the sponsors of the event. And so you had all of these students, and they built the they built their systems on the Linux One community cloud system. So every one of these students had built out a Linux guest with, you know, copious amounts of scripting involved so they could do it easily. And then um, brought up the Hyperledger Composer to build a blockchain prototype that matched the use cases that these companies had come up with. And it was just so rewarding to see young people that were – a third my age, <laughs> half my age at least, um, <laughs> building this stuff on the mainframe. Now, did they know it was a mainframe? Some did, but that's kind of the that's kind of the point. It didn't matter. Um, but that's the way you get your experience. I was I was telling my boss here just today. Um, I was uncomfortable doing that, but I learned a lot by putting myself in an uncomfortable situation. Uh, learning by doing, by reading, whatever. It's kind of it. it's just got to keep doing it. It's I think Ginny had said something about that, of just you know, continuous learning being such an important thing for us and for the industry. So it's it's easy for you because you've got a, a Z in your back pocket. What if for listeners who, who don't have that, how, how do they get hands-on on, on Z? Yeah, that's that's an ongoing problem that I hear about it every time I present it, share. I mean, every time mm-hmm. at the end of the presentation, you've got someone that comes and, and expresses that concern. and. And I sympathize. Like you said, I've got the luxury of, of having access to that. I think that the Linux community cloud will be part of that solution. I think it sounds like there's a ZOS community cloud either underway or partially there. I know we've got the the, the um, tryout, what's a, the Z trial, Z trial program, uh, yep. program that, that does some of that. So I think that's part of the answer. Um, to some extent, it, it's not as important as it once was because these technologies that are coming out are relatively platform agnostic. So if you learn about Node.js or Python or Anaconda or you know one of those things that are, we're using like with machine learning now, you just, you'll use it on Z2. Um, Hyperledger is one of those. If you if you go to the Composer Playground and mess around with with uh, Hyperledger and blockchain, it looks exactly the same on Linux on Z. So the part of the answer is IBM is going to continue to imp- improve that um, ability to get to systems that are running the the mainframe i guess the 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 mainframe contest the master of the mainframe is also either currently or will be available to pretty much anyone yep as opposed to being just students and i think that's a huge one there personally i think that if somebody wanted to really learn go through that and 
know, throw a new person at it. Um, now, you know, granted, high school and college kids now have got a lot of IT exposure, a lot more than we did when we went through. But I'm, I'm looking at Frank right now, not so that Jeff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's 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 the the accessibility of a, of a ZOS system to log into TSO and do all that not quite as important as it used to be. Um, you know, TSO jocks that are out there don't take, don't get me wrong. I'm not denigrating DS, TSO, but you know, I, I learned I learned ISPF by going through the tutorial. Literally, hit F1 and work my way through the tutorial. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think we got to give people a chance to do that kind of thing. But I just encourage people to to learn technologies like programming with with new languages. Um, you know, Swift is coming to the platform. It's there on Linux. It's at least in beta on ZOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and those are things you can shoot. You can use the the Swift playground or whatever it's called on on iOS. There's a, a Python programming environment. There's um, JavaScript, so, and all of those things are on Z. So it's, um, you know, I was a Rex developer. I, I did. I got I got paid to write Rex for a while. <laughs> and you're the guy who wrote all that Rex. <laughs> <laughs> the one guy. Yeah. No, I, did, I did write a couple of examples in that, that ZOS Basics Red Book. It's uh, huh. we, I was one of the guys that worked on the original copy of that. So I think I wrote the C list example that was in there and. So don't blame me if it's wrong. Uh, well, well, anymore, anymore. Yeah. What I think is kind of funny about the uh, the whole green screen and you know, we need to be using GUIs kind of thing is, for the longest time that was like, well, no, no young kid is going to want to use a, a terminal. They they want to use this this new stuff, and it, why? Well, just just look at the way things are going. No one wants to use a green screen. No one wants to use a terminal. But if you look at the way that people program today and you look at their screen, they've got, you know, Sublime Text or Atom up. That's right. And they've got four or five, six panes of just text. And it's because it's more efficient and it's faster. So it's, it always struck me as like that's, that's not the silver bullet, no. you know, putting, putting buttons and sliders in front of somebody. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> but, I think the GUI is, is a starting point, but it's probably not where you're going to land permanently. So, you know, you – did you see the presentation I did at Share? Yes. That? Yeah. So it's it's for the people with your son's. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So my my my, my son is a, a software developer in Austin, uh, and and when I was preparing for that presentation, I was like, yeah, I want to see what a real desktop because I had the same opinion you did that full time developers these days that are writing code with with um, Go or whatever are using command line utilities and and Atom and VS Code and things like that. So I, I had him uh, send me a photo of his desktop, and so he's got three screens, right? Two externals and a Mac screen, and one thing he was using a you know, quote-unquote GUI for, and that was GitHub. Right. And everything else was was line editors or command line, you know, you know writing code, pushing it up to Git and whatever. And um, that's as that's as complex as ISPF. There's, you know, if not more so. Oh, it was, but it's always fun watching people get into an argument over whether XED is better than VI, <laughs> is better than Emacs. It's like, let me guess, the thing that you grew up with is the thing that you think is better. That's really? right. <laughs> yeah, I hard to, to believe. I, I used to do presentations on, on what is now the uh, IBM developer for Z. And back when it was called WebSphere's Enterprise Developer or something, I forget yeah. what the name of it was. And I remember distinctly doing one of these like in Columbus, Ohio at, at a meeting and Talking about the value of using a GUI to do 
development, and I got my head ripped off at the end of that by some guy. Like, yeah, this PF is so much better now. I can do all this stuff. I got all these PF keys programmed. Like, dude, I'm not telling you not to use it. I'm just saying that somebody walking in new might get some benefit out of being able to use that interface until they're more comfortable with some of the stuff that, that the rest of us are com- accustomed to using. Yeah, somebody without that muscle memory might benefit from some automation. Right, and yeah, will they use IDZ for the rest of their career? Um, a little bit, maybe. It's got a great debugging facility that's not really very easy to use something like that in ISPF. But, um, you know, don't you know, don't push back on something that, that maybe is useful for somebody that's got less skill than you do. So, no. I don't know. We, we tend to be pretty partisan in our <laughs> mainframe world of, uh, you know, you're not part of the club yet, so... Um, you have to know. do your time. You have to do your time. Yeah, exactly. that's one of the things for me that's very frustrating is is the belief that somehow... Unless you've been writing code, a COBOL or, or more likely assembler, if you haven't been writing assembler for for at least ten years, you don't know anything about the mainframe. Yeah, if you haven't been locked in a basement room answering WTORs, you don't deserve <laughs> the right. <laughs> I, I was fortunate on that. Right when I started um, as a, I started as a system programmer out of college. And so when I, when I was in college, I, I remember calling my father had been in IT since the 50s. And um, I remember ta- telling him, you know, I'm taking this assembler class. It's really cool. I really enjoy it. He says, you know, if you really like assembler, you should, you should consider being a system programmer when you get out of school because you use a lot of assembler. And he was right. And so that's what I did. And I got a, I, the, I never felt disrespected. Um, as a you know greenhorn you know kid who barely shaves coming out of school, um, I don't know maybe it's different now. I, I, but back then I think, and I think now your expertise is what gets you your respect, right? If if you know what you're doing, then people are going to treat you right. And I know here in IBM we've hired some really really smart young people, and um, they get that amount of respect. So, but yeah, there's a little bit of the. If you ain't got green, uh, gray hair, if you ain't got green hair, gray hair, <laughs> um, you don't know what you're doing. If you can't write a IEFUJV exit, then you're you ain't squat. So, so we're we're running a little low on time here, but I, I'd like to just uh, take a couple of minutes and have you talk about. You said you started out as a as a sysprog, and somehow now you're an architect. How did you make that transition? Well, it's an interesting question. Jeff and I have talked a little <laughs> bit about this, right, just career paths and how they work. Um, so I was a sysprog, and um, I worked for several companies, you know, typical young guy, right, changed jobs three or four times. And um, I, I wanted to work for IBM, and the company I worked for is a now-defunct retailer that long ago went out of business. And I, I basically I sent resumes to IBM and said, I want to I want to work for IBM. And I sent them to five managers in IBM and got calls from all five of them for interview and started as a system engineer straight out of this system programming job, which at that point was a fairly close career thing. That a, you know, An SC was somebody that basically worked with system programmers a lot and helped them with what they were doing. And so that's how I got into IBM. And I was an SC for several years. And and then I, I, had, I came to this inflection point in my career that said, I, I want to do something really different. And at that point was when client server technology was taking off. And I went to the lady that was the second or third line manager and told her, I, I'm, I'm interested in this group because IBM was starting a, an organization to help customers with client server technology. She said, really? Said, yeah, that's what I want to do. Okay. So she sent me over there, and I did that in t- from about 
92 through 99, so it's about six or seven years. And during that time, I was part of a prototyping and, and you know, kind of we did proof of concepts with this new technology. And um, that's, that's how I kind of got out of the Z side for a while. And then we started this architect team, and I was at a kind of another similar inflection point in the career. And it's like, well, I kind of like to try the architect job. So at that point, I had enough of that broad exposure to technology that it made sense. So I, it, and, and then, I don't know, seven years ago, I had another one of those where I went to the manager and said, I really want to do something different. I wound up being a manager for a few years, which was a – one of my friends joked around, you know, everybody should be a manager once, you know. Whether you stay at that or not, that's your choice. But I, I don't know. Just in my career, I've tried to to make sure I have a very wide variety of experiences. So that's how I wound up with the with the Z Architect thing was just going, hey, let's try something different. I was always doing something. We had just founded that that part of the organization, so it was a, just a new and exciting thing to do. Well, it's still fun. So you you actually just kept going for those. All right, I'm I'm bored of this. Let me do something completely different. Yeah, not everybody's like that, but there's some guys that have been doing the same job for 30 years, and mm-hmm. you know, bless their hearts, we got to have people like that. <laughs> uh, some people are like me that are anxious. You know, yeah, get, you I, get impatient. If I did the same thing, the exact same thing for 30 years, I would have killed myself. Yeah. A long just time. a program. It was a fun job, but um, I, it was just the point in my career where, you know, like I said, the company was having issues and. I need an escape hatch. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm kind of mentally drawing out that Venn diagram of what would make somebody a good Z architect. You mentioned the you know there has to be a, a level of curiosity, there has to be some technical ability, some customer experience, and then they have to be a mainframe person on well, top of that. <laughs> or or does that imply that? No, you're right. It's <laughs> it's a great point. I I was looking to hire somebody when I was a manager, and I wound up looking to to hire somebody from from overseas. And so I had to go through the discussion with the immigration people about why I needed to hire someone offshore as opposed to somebody here. Well, I said, there's three skill sets that I need in a person. I need someone who knows architecture and and IT architecture skills. I need somebody who has mainframe skills. And I need someone who has had experience dealing with customers. And those three, as you say, the Venn diagram intersection point is tiny. And uh, that that I had a guy that was experienced in all of those, and that's why I brought him over here. And um, we actually had run ads and, and had positions uh, posted, and couldn't find anybody with those with those criteria. And so, yeah, it's it's a hard role. Uh, it's hard enough to find um, ex- Z people with broad experience that go beyond Z. It's easy er <laughs> easier to hire somebody that knows Z that's been in it their whole career. Yeah. Than it is to hire somebody that's had that plus other stuff, and um, so it. And we've got a whole team of there's fifty some odd Z architects in North America, and a number of folks outside North America that do the job. And I think a good part of them have that qualification. Yeah, there's one more skill that's in there that we we keep keep glossing over, uh, that I think is extremely important, and and that is they have to be really really good listeners. That's true. That's that's a key architecture kind of um, thing. You know, we we were joking around at breakfast about the the um, Myers Briggs thing, right? <laughs> and um, one of the things that an introvert does is listens a lot before they say anything. So it's it's you know there's 
biblical passage about that, right? You know, quick to listen, slow to speak. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the criteria you have to go after is just, like you said, listen, listen for requirements, um, ask questions as you're listening. I had a guy once that I interviewed that knew an as the architect and he said, you know, I know a ZCA and he always asks a lot of questions. Like, good, that's what I pay him for. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, so, yeah, you got to be a good listener and you got to gather a lot of information to be able to determine what, what the requirements are and, and what fulfills them. Well, I want to thank, thank you, Bill, for spending this time with us. I know we, we kept you from another session. You could have been attending, and we really, really appreciate it. And I want to thank the landscaping crew, the Washington, D.C. Police Department, <laughs> and whoever is dropping things upstairs for making this a, it's a herd of buffalo. It will certainly heads. be an interesting episode to edit. <laughs> <laughs> Last night we had fireworks. Yeah. Really? I yeah. missed that. No idea well, why. it was right outside the window, yeah. so it's pretty bad. <laughs> We'd like to make our guests feel welcome. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> it's a special what a, occasion. What a, what a welcome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, man, Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.